This podcast, including any related materials, such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. The podcast presenters' views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of their research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Chances are you've heard of the WALS protocol, but when you join us for this episode of The Practice, you're going to get the behind-the-scenes scoop on what it took for a once-conservative academic physician to overcome direct conflict with the very material she's meant to teach her medical students and residents. Dr. Terry Walls was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and found healing through the power of food and nutrition, what she calls therapeutic lifestyle intervention. What Dr. Walls has provided through her research and experimentation started like all truths. First, it was denied and viewed by some as invalid, but time and rigorous data proved her protocol, changed lives around the world, and challenge the conventional medical view that neurodegeneration is unavoidable and irreversible. Dr. Walls has sparked new questions to be answered in the realm of multiple sclerosis and other neurodegenerative diseases that have been deemed irreversible. It felt miraculous, and it was also the first time as like, how much recovery might be possible? Join us on The Practice to hear Dr. Wall's personal story with multiple sclerosis and how she's living proof that healing is possible. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Gottfried, and I'm thrilled to be here with my friend, Dr. Terry Walls. Terry, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so happy you're here. And, you know, I... I heard your story years ago, and it still is so poignant and so touching to me. So I'd love to start there. I'd like to start with what got you started with all of this. Sure. So I'm an academic internal medicine doc, which means I teach at a major university here at the University of Iowa. Uh, and at that point, you know, I'm, I'm uh, teaching my residents to be very skeptical of supplements, of complementary medicine, fancy diets. Um, but, you know, God has a way uh, of changing us. I uh, started having problems with my uh, left leg. I was stumbling. Uh, and ultimately, I got an evaluation that included MRIs of my brain, my spinal cord, spinal taps, nerve conduction velocities. Uh, and I was found to have lesions at the level of my spinal cord. Uh, my neurologist reminded me that 13 years earlier, I'd had an episode of dim vision involving my left eye. So now I had lesions. I had abnormal spinal fluid, and I had episodes separated by time and space. So I met the criteria for relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. Uh, I was advised to uh, begin disease-modifying therapy, uh, and like, uh, which I did. Uh, and like many physicians, I, you know, 
immediately started reading the research to figure out you know, what I should expect and was quite dismayed to see that within 10 years of diagnosis, one half will uh, likely have to stop working because of severe fatigue disability, and a third will have difficulty needing a cane, walker, or wheelchair and will experience serious gait disability. So I, I knew I wanted to treat my disease aggressively. I sought out uh, the best MS center that I could find in the Midwest that was doing clinical research, which was the Cleveland Clinic. Saw their best people. They agreed that uh, I had uh, relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis, and they urged me to begin disease-modifying drugs, which I did. I uh, had just one episode of weakness uh, in the next three years. Uh, and so had I been in a drug trial, that would be a huge success. But um, you know, I was exp experiencing continual steady decline. My Cleveland Clinic physicians told me about uh, the work of Lauren Cordain, uh, which I read his papers, read his book, and decided that uh, there was a scientific rationale behind adopting the paleo diet. So after 20 years of being a vegetarian, a lot of prayer and meditation, I gave up all grains, all legumes, all dairy, and I went back to eating meat. And I continued to decline. Uh, the next year, my physicians told me I'd converted to secondary progressive MS. Uh, at that point, uh, uh, functions once lost would likely uh, continue uh, to disappear. Uh, and so I uh, went ahead and took mitoxantrone, which is a form of chemotherapy. I continued to decline. I did several rounds. I continued to decline. Uh, then my physicians suggested uh, I, I take the new biologic drug, and I was thrilled to take it. And I continued to decline. Uh, and so then they switched me to uh, another disease-modifying drug. At that point, um, I am thinking, like, okay, the best people taking, you know, the, the newest drugs was not stopping my slide towards a bedridden and uh, demented life, potentially, and uh, a life uh, potentially of uh, uncontrolled pain because uh, trigeminal neuralgia was part of my uh, problem as well. And so I start reading uh, the literature again. I start reading PubMed. I'm looking for the latest drug trials. And then finally, I realize like, <laughs> I got to be reading about things that I can access. Um, so I start looking for supplement studies, vitamin studies. And there really isn't anything in the animal models for MS, but there is for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Lou Gehrig's disease. So I, I, I read uh, a bunch of uh, papers and decide that mitochondria are the driver in all these neurodegenerative diseases, and it's probably the driver in MS, even though no one's talking about mitochondria and MS. So I began, again, researching and figuring out a supplement cocktail for mitochondria. You know, I was about six months, maybe nine months into this, I thought, ah, you know, I'm, it's not helping, you're wasting your money, and I quit. And I really couldn't get out of bed to go to work the next day, hmm. uh, or the next day, or the next day. And uh, then, you know, Jackie comes in and says, you know, honey, I think I ought to, ought to take your supplements again. And I did. And I could get up and go to work again. Hmm. And I thought, wow, that is really interesting. So two weeks later, I do the same thing. And again, uh, my fatigue is much worse. I can't function. I can't go to work. And on the third day, I take my uh, supplements again, and I could get up and go to work. So I realized these supplements are reducing my fatigue that yes, they aren't making me better, but I am very excited uh, about that. Um, I uh, tell the Institutional Review Board that I'm part of now that I, I want to review all the studies related to the brain uh, that are human 
Uh, and so I, I'm getting more and more comfortable reading uh, research, more comfortable beginning to experiment on myself. Um, and I, I, I decide that, you know, I, I'm happy to take these disease-modifying drugs because I want to slow my decline, but clearly my supplements are doing something really important. Um, by the summer of 07, I am so weak, I, I can't sit up in a chair like this, Sarah. Mm. I have a, a special chair, a zero-gravity chair that I can recline. My knees are higher than my nose. I am still working. The VA and the university have redesigned my job multiple times. I can walk very short distances, like from here to the wall there, mm -hmm. uh, using two walking sticks. Uh, I'm quite fatigued by 10 in the morning. I'm losing my keys, my phone. I had to replace my smartphone three times that summer. So I'm beginning to have issues with brain fog. My chief of staff calls me in to tell me he's assigned me to the traumatic brain injury clinic come January. I'll be seeing patients without residence. And uh, I go home, I tell Jackie, and she goes, you know, Terry, you, you can't do that job. A couple weeks later, I uh, review an article uh, or a research protocol that uses electrical stimulation of muscles in people who've had a spinal cord injury. Uh, you know, it just gets me thinking, could I use that for MS? I convinced my physical therapist to let me begin uh, doing ESTEM as part of my very simple basic workout. Then I come across the Institute for Functional Medicine. They have a course on neuroprotection. I you know, get the course, it's these uh, big uh, case notebook uh, and uh, uh, video lectures uh, that I'm reviewing, taking notes in the midst of my brain fog, so it's really a lot of <laughs> it's work. It's not easy. It's not easy with your brain totally intact. <laughs> and I, I have a longer list of supplements, I add those. And not much has really happened, but I, now I have another really, really big idea. It's like, you know, I should figure out where these nutrients are in the food supply and restructure my diet to stress more of, of these nutrients. So uh, I, I finally uh, find the Linus Pauling Institute of Micronutrients uh, from Oregon, use that to restructure my paleo diet. Uh, and December 26th, I start eating this way. Less meat, more vegetables, a lot more vegetables, more organ meat. Uh, and in the middle of January, I go off uh, to the traumatic brain injury clinic and I'm watching my partners uh, for the first week. So I, and I'm just watching as well, that week goes okay. I'm now like entering my third week of this new way of eating. I'm thinking, you know, my energy's a little bit better and uh, my, I'm feeling a little more clear in my thinking. And so now we're in my fourth week, and now I'm going to start seeing the patients. So I'm getting up and doing the exam and sitting down, and at the end of the week, I'm like, you know, that, that wasn't too bad. <laughs> so I can do this job. And after the th uh, third month, I mail a letter. I get up, and I take my cane. And I walk down the hall and I mail a letter, and everyone's stunned because no one's seen me walk in years, mm. four years to be exact. And then uh, in six months, I'm walking around the VA hospital without a cane. Uh, and at nine months, um, I get on my bike and I'm able to bike around the block. Um, and what you should know, Sarah, is I had fully accepted that. Progressive MS is only downhill, that functions once lost do not come back. So I had done the ESTEM, I had done the supplements, I had done all this stuff, not to recover, because I knew recovery was not possible. Mm -hmm. I'd done all of this 
to slow the decline. And when you have a neurodegenerative disease, uh, part of the coming to terms with that is letting go of expectations, letting go and just taking one day at a time. Mm -hmm. And so as I had had this remarkable recovery, I didn't know what any of it meant. I was just taking it one day at a time. Well, I got to buy a bike. You know, my son's jogging on the left. My daughter's jogging on the right. Jackie's uh, biking behind me. My kids are crying. Jackie's crying. I'm crying. And I'm crying now. It, it felt miraculous. And it was also the first time as like, how much recovery might be possible? That the conventional understanding of neurodegeneration, of progressive MS, is wrong. And of course, by that time, uh, in, in my clinics, you know, I, I'm talking very little about drugs. I'm talking a lot about diet quality and exercise uh, and li uh, therapeutic lifestyle. Uh, and so I've changed how I, I'm practicing medicine. And of course, I would ultimately change the research that I do, and I'm changing everything. Your story is is so intense. I agree. It is miraculous. And you and I were both trained in allopathic medicine. Oh, yes. There's a few places along the road that I hear that I want to go back to and maybe get a little more granular. Sure. The first is you had the openness after you were diagnosed to look at the work of Lauren Cordain. And... Mm -hmm. That's not true of every allopathic physician. No. Was it the desperation? Was it, like, what was it that motivated you? Like, you were just wanting to search for other options besides what was on the table from conventional well, medicine? Well, you know, what really helped was I had two kids. Um, when I was diagnosed with MS, uh, my uh, son was eight, my daughter was five, and, you know, I'm not wanting to become a financial burden. So I, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, uh, what was my purpose in life, was to have two kids uh, that are successful emotionally and financially. Um, and uh, what could I do? I, 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 I couldn't teach them resilience by mountaineering and backpacking and kayaking. But I could teach them resilience by not giving up. I could teach them that uh, I could go to work every day, I could uh, adapt as I was getting assigned new tasks, uh, not complain. I could give them uh, chores. They weren't too happy about that, but they had chores, and they had real work that they would have to do. But it also meant I had to be willing to do everything that I possibly could. And so when my Cleveland Clinic physician said, you ought to check out the work you know, from Ashton Embry and Lauren Cordain, I said, well, okay. So I, I, I read those papers. They were published, you know, in, in our peer-reviewed journals. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. And it was sort of tricky reading them because I was beginning to have a little brain fog even then. Uh, and then I got his uh, book for uh, the public that was easier reading. I thought, okay, well, it's something I can do. So uh, it, was, it was a big deal to uh, let go of my vegetarian diet. Now, part of me, I had to laugh a lot because I have uh, my parents were farmers. So they kept telling me when I was a vegetarian, Terry, you are wrecking your health. <laughs> and uh, my, my dad had already died. My mom had died uh, about four months before I'd made this change. 
So as I was going through my, my prayers and being med meditative about all this, I said, you know, I feel so bad that you guys died before. <laughs> so you didn't get to me. Uh, vindicated. You say, vindicated. You were right. I may have been wrecking my health uh, with those choices. And then, so I make the change, and, you know, like, I, I'm not getting better. And I'm like, well, how long does it take to rebuild a broken brain? Hmm. Is this like a year? Two years? Four years? Five years? Ten years? I didn't know, but I figured, like, I got to at least hope that it's possible, so I, I, I better stay on this. Yeah. So I was willing to stay on it. I love that. So when I look back at my experience in medical school, biochemistry I learned, all the basic science, I had about 30 minutes of nutrition. How much did you have? Oh, I don't think I even got that. Yeah. It's, it's a it's problem. It's shocking. You know, and we got, uh, did I get anything about uh, exercise? I don't remember that. I don't remember anything about stress reduction. My perception as I went through my medical education was that these were considered kind of lesser concerns, lesser subjects than the latest immunology, mm -hmm. the latest um, science paper, the latest paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine, mm -hmm. you know, the, the latest uh, Nobel Prize in medicine and what that represented. And so lifestyle medicine, therapeutic lifestyle, was really not something that I was taught much about. I had to teach myself. Mm -hmm. yeah. but, but you had this openness, which I, I think is so um, curious and also your salvation. I like how you kind of framed it as um, this was something I could do for my kids, like I wanted to show them resilience. You know, absolutely. Um, and had I not had children... I'm not sure I would have had to down this journey. Um, but having my two kids uh, gave me a great deal of pause. Uh, they're watching. Um, and I, you know, moms, we will do more for our kids than we'll do for ourselves. Absolutely true. Uh, and so when I talk with my patients, I often take advantage of that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I know you may not be ready to do this for yourself but you have children that are depending on you. Uh, and so it's uh, and nearly always uh, they will do that. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. I feel like, you know, we know so much about what moves the needle when it comes to your health, especially with lifestyle medicine. Um, the change management is kind of another beast entirely. And I think yes. finding those ways, especially over a, a long career in medicine of really understanding how to motivate change is mm -hmm. such an important part of the art and science of medicine. Absolutely. Uh, I've become more and more uh, impressed with uh, helping people grow their resilience, growing their internal motivation. You know, early on when I was doing my research, uh, one of my key research mentors is a dietitian who uh, her area of expertise is behavior change. Uh, and so I, I learned a lot from my uh, dietitian colleagues uh, and um, utilize that in our research and then utilize that in my lifestyle clinic and then working with the behavior psychologist. So I, I spend more and more time uh, talking about resilience, why uh, people want to do this and help them grow their internal motivation. Because th that's that is really the name of the game is helping people grow their desire to do this very hard work. 
to define their why. I think the why is, the why. is a big part of then getting to the what and the how. Correct. So I want to talk a bit about your research because I, I think this is, you're adding to the evidence base in a mm-hmm. way that I think is um, so impactful. And I would say, you know, if we look at it objectively, there's still some gaps in oh, our yeah. knowledge base. Absolutely. What are the gaps and how are you helping to address them? At the university, I had a lot of pushback at first. People were very upset that, you know, I wasn't, uh, they were thrilled with my recovery, but they got really nervous when I quit talking about drugs, started talking about vegetables. (laughs) You know, like, oh my God, what are you doing? I'm talking about B vitamins and fish oil and vegetables. It's so threatening. uh, So I had complaints filed uh, against me, so I had to go meet with the chief of staff and the chief of medicine. Uh, And I, you know, had a cart, you know, full of all of my papers. Uh, and in the end, they were, you know, uh, won over. And then uh, the uh, local MS chapter wanted me to come speak. And then I got interviewed by their clinical advisory board. And then I got banned because they were, they were uh, afraid that people would hear my story and reject disease-modifying drugs, which are FDA-approved and have some uh, proven benefits. Uh, and so they thought they were obligated to ban me. So then I had to go meet with my chief of staff and my chief of medicine say, okay, Terry, what's going on? Why are people banning you? So uh, we, we had to go through uh, all of that. Uh, now, unfortunately, as I, again, went through the science, uh, then uh, they had me meet with the head of the complementary alternative medicine clinic at the university, who, who taught me how to document in the medical record that I'm changing physiology uh, not treating disease, I'm just treating cellular health, and to be very careful to not overpromise. Yes. So I was much more uh, clear in all of my public talks uh, after that. Fortunately, in that journey, it became apparent to uh, my chief of medicine, who then became the dean of medicine, and my chief of staff, that it'd be uh, very important uh, for me to document everything that was going on. So I, I was given first the job of writing up uh, our the case, um, which I did with my treating medical team, uh, and then the I got the end of one case. The end of, of one yourself. case, yeah, very important, uh, and that and that was an interesting experience to, to get through. But we got that done, and then I got called back by the now dean, who gave me the job of, this is so important, you need to do a feasibility trial, and I said, well, that's not my area of research. I'll get you the mentor story. This is your job. <laughs> And you can't say no to the dean. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> so um, yeah, he got me the uh, dietitian, uh, Linda Snutster, who's been an incredible uh, mentor, and, and Warren Darling. Uh, so we wrote up the uh, protocol uh, as precisely as we could. Then I had to secure about $100,000 worth of funding. Uh, and, you know, uh, thank you to, to our Canadian friends. Uh, they uh, helped me secure that. Uh, and we did uh, the study. Uh, because it was so radical, I had to have a little pre-study ahead of time. Because you know, if you're excluding whole food groups, the dietitians are are very concerned that the, it will not be nutritionally sound. And my nutritionist said, "Like this is the most n- nutrient dense diet I've ever <laughs> analyzed in the 35 years I've ever been doing this. Why am I not doing this all the time?" She's like, "Wow." So uh, we did get approval to do the study. But I was still restricted. I could only do 10. We had money to do 20, but I could only do 10. I'd have to file a safety report uh, when the, with the first 10 to show that 
uh, we hadn't harmed anyone, and that the trend is in the right direction. Because with only 10, you're not going to have statistically significant changes. So uh, we did the first 10, and people who are overweight lost weight without being hungry, uh, and that we had uh, improved quality of life, uh, clinically meaningful improvement, really quite dramatic improvement in quality of life, um, uh, as measured by the short form 36. And we had the uh, fatigue reduction with the P, uh, that was really quite large um, on a seven-point scale, uh, it reduced by uh, 2.38. In 10 patients. In, in 10 patients, p-value of 0.0008. That's amazing. That's really amazing. So that was like, wow, that was really pretty good. So we needless to say, we got permission to do add the next 10. Uh, and so we continued... And now I had to file a report every three months because of all the weight loss. <laughs> you were uh, too successful. So the good news is uh, people lost weight. If you're overweight, you lost weight, but nobody became underweight. So we were able to uh, keep people in the healthy weight. Um, we also measured their uh, uh, mood. Uh, so we had favorable changes with anxiety reduction, uh, depression reduction, uh, favorable changes in verbal and nonverbal thinking as measured by uh, computer and pencil paper test. Uh, we uh, have MRIs on the second 10, and that data is not even published because I'm, I'm trying to uh, find a MS group that's uh, for the control group. So we haven't published that data yet. But it was very exciting data. That is absolutely thrilling. Then, well, we've done some, some other uh, pilot studies uh, with, that have been randomized and controlled that have been uh, quite, quite, quite favorable as well. So one of the things that you and I have talked about that I think is really important is that you practice functional medicine in your clinical work at the Veterans Administration. Yes. And you did it very affordably mm -hmm. in two visits a year, I believe about 20, 20 minutes, minutes each. 20 minutes each, yeah. And you had great success. Yeah. So can you share a bit about that? So, so in the uh, primary care clinics with the... Uh, uh, where I was staffing residents, they could do primary care kinds of labs. Uh, and yeah, we, we talk a lot about uh, diet and lifestyle. And uh, the residents were primarily running those visits. And I would occasionally get to go in and get them fired up about vegetables, and, we'd, and they'd be stunned with the kind of success uh, that we were able to achieve. In the traumatic brain injury clinic that I'd been sent to, originally to force me to take medical retirement, of course it turns out to be the perfect place for me because... <laughs> There's nothing that you can do for these guys other than give them uh, psych drugs and say, well, you'll recover to whatever you're going to recover. Um, and I come in and say, there's a lot we can do. We can teach you to meditate. I can have you get a step kind of start walking. I'm going to put you on a gluten-free diet, either as a vegetarian or the paleo diet if you're a meat eater. I made this beautiful little handout about therapeutic lifestyle. And I got 20 minutes, you know, two visits a year. And in my... Uh, traumatic brain injury clinic, I couldn't do any labs. So all I got was education. I could talk to them and give them a handout. Uh, and I'd say about half these guys were willing to go on that journey with me. Mm -hmm. You know, and... They said uh, yes to the change yes. management. I made people really nervous. They're like, oh my... <laughs> but, you know, I, I learned to be very careful to... I wasn't diagnosing or treating. I was just trying to optimize their cellular function to make it easier for the brain to do whatever repair that it was going to be able to do. And the director of the traumatic brain injury clinic 
could quickly tell by the end of the year who I had seen and who I hadn't, because they were more <laughs> likely to still be working uh, and still be romantically involved uh, with someone. My residents were getting much more intrigued by the fact that when they had me come in to talk to their patients, nearly always the patient was willing to make these big changes in their diet. And then when they did, their blood pressures would improve, the blood sugars would improve, and their pain would reduce. And so uh, there were two faculties staffing, and the other faculty would be a conventional internal medicine doc talking drugs. I'm talking biochemistry, physiology, and vegetables. And I'm thinking, you know, this is not going to work. And uh, sure enough, uh, finally the chief of medicine calls me and says, we've got to take you out of primary care. The residents are just getting too confused. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I saw that coming. And it go, then, then what surprised me said, I want you to have your own clinic. Uh, and so then we established uh, the Therapeutic Lifestyle Clinic. And in that clinic, I could now get to have some primary care labs so I could do a vitamin D, a insulin, uh, glucose, uh, fasting lipids, homocysteine. And so that was all that I did. Uh, and I, the supplements I could use, uh, vitamin D, uh, B-complex, uh, and fish oil. That was it. I could, I got a dietitian who uh, I got fired up by our success. Uh, and so we taught in group classes. And uh, we would do an initial intake. Uh, then we would uh, have people come back for a support group uh, as a group uh, every other month uh, for six months. And we had marvelous results, marvelous results. So this is such an important point that I want to enunciate because I, I think you know, with allopathic physicians who maybe have one foot still in the allopathic world and they're starting to check out personalized lifestyle medicine or functional medicine, precision mm -hmm. medicine, they look at, you know, kind of the financial cost of the workup. You know, maybe it's $10,000, $20,000 to get all the specialty labs. And I think this is so important to realize that you can actually have great success even with the short list of labs that you were doing, even with the short list of supplements that you had on offer. Um, and keep in mind, in my traumatic brain injury clinic, I could do no labs, <laughs> no labs. And for the first two years, no supplements. All I had was uh, the opportunity to talk with, uh, talk with them, to explain that I thought diet was key, uh, quality of sleep was key, and movement was key. Uh, and to invite them to go on this journey and say, look, you've been suffering for years. Uh, would be willing to do an experiment. I, and, and I would urge them to do the experiment for 100 days when they were ready. Uh, and uh, people were, were often ready. My vets over time uh, really taught me to, to value uh, talking about why they want to do it, uh, what is their purpose. I spent a lot of time talking about their hero's journey and that this opportunity for self-reflection, self-experimentation is their hero's journey, uh, that they could, if they can reclaim their health, then this is the gift they could give back to their buddies. Hmm. Uh, they're also struggling. Huge, huge. So uh, they taught me a lot. You know, and you know, at, at first, when I first was discovering functional medicine, I was so annoyed with the VA that I didn't have more time. I couldn't get the functional medicine labs. And I, and I was sort of cranky about it. Um, but you know, it was such a phenomenal gift that I had the tools. And, and the, the most important tool is inspiring hope, explaining why this might work, 
in inviting them to do this journey, this journey of self-experimentation for 100 days at 100% when they, whenever it is that they're ready to do it, and then come back and let us know how it goes, and come back and ask for help if they need it. That is a very powerful intervention. So I hope our listeners can borrow um, what you just described, because I think that 100-day commitment, you know, that container, it's actually a, um, considered a gong. You know, there's kind of this ancient process around yeah. choosing to commit to a, a sacred goal for 100 days. So there's, there's some history to this. So I want to take a step back and tell you that I was on your Instagram account. <gasps> and you had a post that I really loved. And I, I loved it without knowing this backstory because I, I feel like this post was hard won by you. And the post, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but it was something like, vegetables restore biochemical pathways, drugs disrupt biochemical pathways. Yeah. Did I get it right? That's close enough. That's close enough. Good. Okay. Yeah. So I absolutely loved it. In fact, I clipped it. I, I put it in a talk. I gave credit to you, told everyone to follow you on Instagram. And I, I feel like that's kind of a, it's part of the victory mm-hmm. that you've experienced um, in academic medicine, in the, in the VA system, um, and I, I just kind of loved it on its own, but I especially love hearing the backstory of it. Yeah, you know, when I think of um, my, my life in uh, academic medicine, so, you know, 12 years ago, as all this was unfolding, and I've become this new kind of physician, very eccentric, very odd, um, I... Uh, People didn't really quite know what to make of me. I, I got invited to give grand rounds because I, I, I was invited to give the same talk I gave for my promotion talk, which was supposed to be about my previous research, but I did it on my case report of myself anyway. And people either loved that talk or thought I was just like uh, way too eccentric. And they didn't be. know what to do with you. Yeah. So I got a lot of pushback, but you know, I, I adapted. Uh, changed my messaging a little bit, I, and then got launched on doing this little feasibility study. And every year we have our research week, and so we'd, we'd have posters up from our research lab, and we start having uh, these stunning results. Uh, and then uh, I started showing the gate change videos, and then we started getting our research published. Uh, and so now I've, uh, and then the university started getting cold calls from people around the globe saying, uh, we've heard about Dr. Walls, and we'd like to contribute to the Walls Research Fund. Oh, I like it. Uh, and so the second time they got a cold call with a six-figure donation to my research lab, I got another appointment with the dean. Just <laughs> <laughs> okay, Terry, like, what's going on? <laughs> this has never happened at the university before. And so I've gone from this eccentric oddity now to this brilliant visionary mm. uh, because... One, I'm a little socially awkward. I'm sort of oblivious, mostly. Um, but I'm willing to do uh, the research. And because I'm not a PhD, I'm an MD, sort of steeped in my own experience and what I've learned through functional medicine, I ask questions that really matter and then hire the PhDs to help me make sure that I have uh, appropriate uh, measures. Mm-hmm. But I don't let them tell me what questions to ask. I ask the questions that really matter. So I want to get to those questions. Um, 
what are the questions that are leading you forward? So the, the next question that uh, we're trying to explore is uh, in the newly diagnosed MS patient or newly diagnosed autoimmune patient, if we put them on a therapeutic lifestyle or we have a newly diagnosed MS patient, we put them on a drug-based therapy and we follow them for a year. And we'll follow them with uh, clinical measures, uh, follow them with uh, ocular uh, coherence tomography, so some very detailed uh, uh, optic uh, nerve functions, and MRIs. Do we harm them? Are we equivalent to the best that uh, drugs have to offer? Are we better? Uh, and uh, we're raising money. I, I'm, uh, we're about 40% of the way there with the amount of money that we need to raise. Um, but I, you know, I'm very optimistic that, that we'll secure the funding and we'll be able to get uh, 20 people in each arm uh, to begin to answer that question. A number of years ago, you published your seminal work, The yes. Walls Protocol. Yeah. You're now revising it. Yes. And I know you've been editing for a long time. You've been integrating yeah, new yeah, research. Yeah. There's a lot of data, new data that's going yeah. into it. Tell us about that. Well. It's so exciting. When I wrote uh, The Walls Protocol, people weren't really talking too much about uh, the microbiome. Uh, we weren't talking yet about uh, epigenetics. Um, so we have all of the microbiome data that's come in. Uh, we have uh, more information that it's, it's not necessarily the species of the microbiome. It's what the species can do. It's their metabolites uh, that help us run the chemistry of life that have this huge impact. So uh, that will be a very, very interesting uh, conversation. Uh, and there's a, a lot more that we understand now about uh, fasting. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and you know, the, the, the many ways that we can get more ketones into our system uh, we could, with time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting, uh, periodic fast, the fasting-mimicking diet. So uh, we'll be talking about that. Um, my research was just beginning, so we can talk about the fact that I now have uh, several published studies, yes. uh, and the fact that, you know, when my book came out, the neurology community uh, thought, you know, what I was doing was potentially dangerous. That, uh, uh, and now, you know, the National MS Society actually likes my work. They're, they've given me over a million dollars to fund our studies. That's fantastic. And they are funding more dietary studies. When you go to clinicaltrials.gov and you put in uh, multiple sclerosis and diet, there are several studies that are going on now. My study, the Swank versus Walls diet, studies of uh, Mediterranean diets, of uh, low-fat vegan diets, uh, of low-fat saturated fat diets, of um, a low glycemic index diet, of ketogenic diets, of a fasting mimicking diet. So. People now agree that diet matters, yes, and diet does. is an important area of study. Uh, and then we can look at the microbiome. There are so many studies going on now for understanding what is the impact of the microbiome. Yes, really important. So, so as we start to wrap up, I want to pose a question to you. So my, I think a lot about allopathic physicians and you know, mm -hmm. we, we both trained in that model, and we both had reasons why we looked for an alternative. 
what would you say to an allopathic physician who's watching us or listening to us right now, who is maybe frustrated with the amount of time that they have per patient, frustrated with the lack of efficacy with a lot of the, you know, Mm -hmm. pill for every ill Mm -hmm. that we were trained to do, and maybe is, is somewhat fearful about stepping away from the devil they know, right? The allopathic model. So what would you say in terms of this arc that you've been on over the course of your career, what would you say to that allopathic physician? Well, uh, if we don't begin teaching our patients how to create more health in their lives by adopting a uh, nutrient-dense diet, if we don't help people understand that our diet and lifestyle is how we became ill, and that medications may control symptoms, but they don't get to the root cause of why we became ill. Your patients will continue to get steadily worse. And furthermore, you will ultimately be replaced by other professions that will have those conversations with your patients. It's not that we have to be necessarily expert in uh, that intervention, uh, diet and lifestyle. We can refer our patients to health coaches for that. But we have to be expert in helping them understand that a therapeutic lifestyle is the key to creating a healing environment for their cells. And if we don't create that healing environment for their cells, the problems that were driving the development of all their symptoms, all their chronic diseases will continue, and they will develop worsening symptoms, needing more and higher doses of their current medications, additional diagnoses, additional medications, and then worsening disability. I would also caution you in that you yourself are at risk because of the enormous uh, emotional strain, physical strain, financial strain that uh, we physicians are under. And if we don't ourselves take care of a therapeutic diet and lifestyle for ourselves and our family, our health will decline. So my first recommendation is begin doing this for yourself and then begin talking to your patients about why diet and lifestyle are at the root of health. Impeccable, beautiful, love it. Any last thoughts or ideas that you want to share? You know, uh, I'd say one thing that has been shown in a number of studies, uh, physicians and health practitioners who use elements of a therapeutic lifestyle in their own lives, whether it's a stress-reducing practice, uh, physical activity, uh, or a therapeutic diet, find ways to introduce it and use it very successfully in their own clinical practice. If they don't use any aspect of a therapeutic lifestyle, they never implement it in their practice. So one of the things I've been pushing uh, at the two medical schools in Iowa, the school in Des Moines University, and at University of Iowa, is that we need to be teaching our medical students and all of our health professional students how to use a therapeutic lifestyle in their own lives so our students can survive and thrive during their medical training or nursing training or physical therapy training so that our students uh, don't suffer from depression, anxiety, and uh, suicide. Absolutely. Uh, we certainly have had that happen at the University of Iowa. We've had that happen at uh, Des Moines University. So when you 
practice these things yourself and then you teach it and pay it forward with your patients, it creates this, um, this sense of alignment that I think is essential. It's very easy to talk about how you implement these concepts if you're doing them yourself. <laughs> it's very easy. It's very easy to talk about how you manage uh, these dietary changes if you've already mastered them. It's very easy to talk about how I add in a, a quick meditation if that's part of my practice. It's easy to talk about uh, how I got a step counter. You know, it's easy to get to 10,000 steps a day if that's something that you have done. And patients know when you're speaking from your experience. They love that. They love you sharing that part of your life. Absolutely. Especially the, the struggles, because it's not always a, it's not like an on-off switch. <laughs> That's right. Then they know we are real. They love hearing your personal hero's journey, your struggle. Yeah. And the fact that, yes, it's not always all up, you know, it doesn't always go the correct trajectory. It's usually up and down. And your patients uh, will treasure that. So if people want to support you, if they want to donate to your research fund, how can they do that? Well, if you go to my website, terrywalls.com, uh, we have a link on there uh, for the About uh, Research, and you'll want to uh, uh, direct your donation to the Walls Therapeutic uh, Lifestyle Fund. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Terry Walls. It's just an honor to be with you. I love your work. I think you're, you're changing the world, and I am just so happy to support you. I'm so grateful. I'm grateful for the entire journey. And I'm glad you're my friend. Same here. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for this episode of The Practice. You'll find extensive show notes, including links and supportive materials over at thepracticepodcast.tv. While you're there, explore other topics and use the Ask and Answer button to ask your burning questions and give your insights about the topic. After all, the future of medicine lies in dialogue, not dogma. Let's transform medicine together by connecting on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find all the links at thepracticepodcast.tv. This podcast, including any related materials such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. This podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship and should not be considered a substitute for the independent professional judgment of any physician or healthcare professional regarding the appropriate course of action for a particular patient or individual. Metagenics does not make any guarantees regarding the accuracy, completeness, or usefulness of this podcast for any particular purpose. Listeners may use this podcast at their own risk and patients should not disregard or delay seeking advice from their healthcare providers based on the content of this podcast. Participation through the Ask and Answer button is optional and no participant should feel obligated to provide personal details, including about any diagnosis, symptoms, or other health-related information. Neither Metagenics Institute nor any of its affiliates seek this information and it is not necessary to participate in the dialogue regarding this podcast.
The podcast presenters' views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of its research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Listening to this podcast does not obligate you to purchase, use, recommend, or prescribe any Metagenics or Metagenics Institute products or services, including their educational materials. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Unless approved by Metagenics Institute, this podcast must be used only for personal, non-commercial purposes. This podcast has no independent economic value and is intended to comply with all applicable laws. It may be rescinded, revoked, or amended at any time without notice. Listeners who are patients should talk to their healthcare providers if they have any questions regarding the content discussed in this podcast. Listeners who are healthcare professionals may obtain more information by visiting metagenicsinstitute.com, calling 888 888- 690-8500 or emailing med ed at metagenicsinstitute.com.